For the week of December 20th, 2013, this is the Energy Gang Podcast from Green Tech Media. Hello and welcome. Stephen Lacey here, Senior Editor with Green Tech Media in Washington, D.C., as usual. With me, also from this fair capital city, is my co-host, Catherine Hamilton. She's a partner at the clean energy public policy consulting firm 38 North Solutions. Catherine, how are you today? Just great. Just winding down all my shopping for those uh, solar chargers that and earrings that Jigger suggested uh, for my 85,000 relatives. <laughs> Speaking of your relatives, we were talking before the show and you got a nice surprise. Your son was uh, studying in Vienna this last semester and he told you he was interested in a career in renewable energy finance. Yeah, I was I was stunned. It did take him going to another hemisphere to figure it out. Did, you didn't push him? I didn't at all. No, but I'm I'm really happy that he wants to do that. Well, I guess it runs in the family then. And in New York, it's our other co-host Jigger Shah. He's a clean tech investor and author of the book Creating Climate Wealth. So, Jigger, you are a renewable energy investor. Uh, what else do you want to be when you grow up? Well, I want to learn how to make cocktails. <laughs> I'm like, you know, I'm obsessed with being a mixologist now. I've been drinking cocktails in New York City, and it's actually fascinating how they mix different types of drinks and different types of things that you don't think would ever go together. Like, for instance, this, this I just had this uh, pepper-infused vodka, and it's extraordinary. This, the mixology scene is blowing up. I had a uh, bacon and egg martini recently, too, which was unbelievably good. Uh, I'm telling you. That I sounds that gross. That, <laughs> no, it was really good. I'm with you, Jigger. Yeah, so that that's going to have to be our side project, the Energy Gang uh, Mixologist book. So do you have a cocktail next to you right now for this show? I don't because you guys are wonderful to work with. I don't actually have to drink while we work. <laughs> All right, well, this is our last show before 2014. And actually, I have good news, guys. So after that introduction, our jobs are over for the year. Uh, the executives of the television network TNT took an interest in this podcast and they bought us out. And now for the year-end show, we're just going to run a marathon of the Christmas story for the next week. So, so to all of our listeners, enjoy and don't shoot your eye out. There it is. The holy grail of Christmas gifts. The Red Rider 200-shot range model air rifle. Ralphie? What would you like for Christmas? Horrified. I heard myself blurted out. I want an official Red Rider Carbon Action 200 Range Ball Air Rifle. You'll shoot your eye out, kid. Merry Christmas. Ho, ho, ho. Fat chance. Turns out in Obama's America, we're required by law to do at least 35 minutes of informing and educating and convincing people that green jobs are real. Okay. Neither of those things is true, except for the green jobs part. They're mostly real. Rather, in this week's show, we're going to provide a rundown of our favorite clean energy stories of 2013. So we actually have to do some work. And then we're going to speculate on the big stories of 2014. So kidding aside, let's uh, roll into our first segment here and get the show going and hear from the gang on what they think will define 2013. Jigger, let's start with you. What do you think the biggest clean energy story of 2013 was? So I think there were two that I think that were really amazing in different areas. One is the NRG Yield Co. and the Solar City Bond. I think that the fact that 
mainstream capital at the pension fund level is now able to invest in solar and other renewables will send shockwaves for the next five years into the way that these projects are financed. And so I think that was the biggest year, 2013. And the other thing I followed well, in 2013. Let's, let's let's stop you there because I want to I want people to understand what this NRG Yield Co is. We talked about the Solar City securitization. Can you describe what NRG was trying to do with that uh, IPO? Yeah. So NRG took all of its assets, um, coal, natural gas, and other assets in Texas, as well as its big solar uh, farms that it invested in, and put it into one company, basically a, a yield company, and the cash that comes off of those projects every year from selling the power into the marketplace or the under the PPAs gets distributed out to investors um, as a yield play. So there's a lot of retirees who want to buy stocks who have um, a dividend yield that comes off of them every year. These were retirees that used to buy utility stocks until they went in the crapper and now they're buying renewable energy yield co stocks. And so um, so the fact that that came off without a hitch um, was a big deal because six months earlier, River Rock tried to do the same thing in Toronto and they had to pull it because they, didn't, they weren't quite sure that they liked the yield that they were getting. So the fact that NRG successfully went out in the marketplace and people can trade the stock now is a really big deal. And this is good news for investors who've really suffered as individual stocks of companies have taken a big hit in the recent years. Yeah, that's right. But, but really, the baby boomer target is the one that I'm looking at now because there's a lot of baby boomers who, if they want an, an, an annuity, Prudential and all these other guys are giving them 3% guaranteed rates of return for the next 20 years, where this yield co is paying 4.8%. That's much better than 3%. All right. What was your next one? And then the other thing that I've been following that's been hugely successful in 2013 has been the sharing economy. And so I think that's I think 2013 was the year of the sharing economy, whether it was car sharing with Uber and Sidecar and Lyft and those guys, or whether it was just, you know, a lot of these free cycle websites that people are using instead of Craigslist to be able to donate stuff or like find people who want their stuff that they don't need anymore. And so I think this big sharing economy thing, Airbnb, et cetera, will get bigger and bigger. Love it. We still need to do a full show on this. And inevitably, this is going to create conflict going forward. I mean, we saw a number of regulatory issues as well. And I know that New York issued a consumer warning about, I think it was Sidecar. Please forgive me, listeners. I don't have the story in front of me. Uh, because Sidecar was claiming that riders were covered under the uh, car owner's insurance when, in fact, they were not under New York insurance law. So this created a big kerfuffle, and these sharing companies, and also Airbnb has dealt with some of these under uh, New York law related to hotels uh, and hotel taxes. Uh, this has created a number of roadblocks for these companies trying to roll out in states beyond, say, progressive ones like California. No, I think that's right. But I think that you know the word that we used at the Carbon War Room was um, irreversible momentum. And I think the sharing economy has reached irreversible momentum. It's not possible, even if any one of these companies goes out of business, it's not possible to stop this trend now. I just think that, that there will always be more and more people that keep pushing the boundaries, keep lobbying, keep advocating. And so I just think people are now um, to do some of these sharing services, and, um, and I just don't think they're going to go away. Catherine, what about you? Top story or top stories of 2013? 
Uh, you know what I'm going to say. You know it's going to be something about energy storage. Storage, yes. Yeah. <laughs> but honestly, this is, to me, phenomenal because here's a, techno- a set of technologies that, you know, for 20 years, it's like like a science club. These guys just kind of like puttering around, trying to get stuff done, people calling it lightning in a bottle, um, you know, the, the holy grail, which, of course, I never found. Um, but kind of, you know, if we could do this, then we'd solve all of our problems. Well, it's like it's here, it's now, and suddenly it's not just that the technology is here, but policy is being implemented and and actually pushing these out. So the California mandate for 1.3 gigawatts, the FERC decisions, you know, three in a row decisions that are going to open up the markets to various sizes of storage technologies and various services they provide. And that's only going to grow. And, and of course, the, the state PUCs are still going to have to, you know, there's still some adjustments that need to occur to, to be able to account for all the values of storage. But honestly, this is this year it has just absolutely blown wide open. And this technology, these set of technologies and applications seem to me to be really not in any way a dog whistle negatively for anyone. Now, at some point, someone's going to decide they hate it. But so far, so good. I mean, I haven't seen anybody on the right or on the left saying that this is not a good idea. And everybody's talked for so long about it being the thing everybody needs that at this point, you can't say, oh, no, never mind, we didn't need it. Because it's here and it's now. And I think it's just going to grow even more. But this year really does seem to be the year for storage. So do you think it's the year for storage technologically, or is it just that the regulatory pieces have been put into place so that the coming years will bring the boom in storage? Because it's still a very small market on the battery side. It is, but everything started falling into place technologically and operationally. So utilities were sort of starting to to see how everything inter, you know, interconnected and interoperated and how their systems would, would adjust. And and when you see people like Duke Energy and Nextera taking big investment bets, GE, big investment bets on storage, you know there's something there. Um, and 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 yet the, you know there because they also do traditional generation. I think what you're seeing is everybody is seeing this as the next big place. And and the technology works. I think you know now that the markets are being set up, the technology is going to follow. So you'll get longer duration, longer capacity, um, and a whole host of new interesting technologies, um, bringing down the price on compressed air and you know chemical storage and all this kind of other interesting types of storage. Um, I think it's it's going to grow, but this. This year was the year I think that it it kind of drove a stake in and said, hey, we're here to stay. On the storage side, I mean, I've been working on storage since, I guess, like when I was a contractor with DOE back in 1997, 98. I mean, Sandia has been doing tons of stuff there. I'm wondering now that this has become commercial, is it only, quote unquote, bankable storage technologies that can get out there or, or is there room for some of these new storage technologies from Don Sadaway's lab and other places to actually find a financing solution? Yeah, I think there's a lot of room for new technology. Um, we just got a bill introduced in the Senate, uh, Toomey Menendez bill, which is a startup jobs uh, and innovation act. And um, it, what it would do is allow for pre-revenue companies to create partnership structures and take advantage of the R&D tax credit. And I think that if you can create some policies that will incentivize companies that spend more of what they're doing on research and development and pilot 
pilots um, and not penalize them for that and allow investors to come to the table, I think you'll continue to see really interesting new technologies come out. Very cool. I found it pretty difficult to pick a top story because it was such a fast-moving year and we talk about everything on this show and there are so many fascinating topics. But I'm a product of the topics that I focus primarily on. So I'm going to say that efficiency, more specifically intelligent efficiency, was a defining issue of this year. So earlier in, uh, let's see, in May, we released a report on intelligent efficiency, which looked at the use of IT and leveraging projects and monitoring projects. And this isn't a new concept, this concept of intelligent efficiency. But this year, we saw a ton of activity in the space that I think made it a pretty important one for both the residential sector and in the commercial industrial sector. And there are a couple different stories or a few different stories that I think highlight some of the interesting activity we see here. Uh, Nest, the intelligent thermostat maker founded by Apple engineers, is now shipping 50,000 products a month, if not more. And we were initially skeptical at GTM of this company, which rolled out a $250 thermostat that no one really knew much about. We'd seen a lot of troubles in the home energy management space, and we just weren't convinced that people were going to buy it. Well, it turns out that they did. And now that people are buying it, the company's leveraging new utility partnerships for residential demand response using this learning thermostat. And some of the pilot programs it has underway have seen an 89% participation rate. So that is huge. Mm-hmm. Uh, then looking at O-Power, they've had another big year. They reached a milestone saving 3 billion cumulative kilowatt hours through its um, simple home energy reports. And then it also launched this behavioral demand response program with Baltimore Gas and Electric, which O-Power says can reduce the per kilowatt cost of programs by 40% or so when scaled. And uh, also, they've seen very high customer participation rates as well. So the residential demand response area has seen participation rates as low as 2%. I mean, it's really small. So the use of IT to actually get people involved in interacting with the utility in new ways and transparently see what's happening in the power markets to make decisions is a big deal. And we saw new offerings underway there. And then in just broader residential energy management we saw some some companies hitting their stride after a rough patch of experimentation, most notably failures with Microsoft and Google. And, and so we saw some software vendors partnering with existing service providers like Vivint Security and Comcast and Alarm.com to get energy management tools integrated into services that customers already have rather than entirely new ones. And that's an important channel that will expand the market, I think. And then just so, go ahead. So the one challenge I have with this sector, I mean, I agree with you completely that these guys have really come into their own in 2013 is I'm just trying to figure out, and maybe Catherine, you've got a perspective on this, but when are the utilities actually going to start depending on these guys, right? Like when are they going to actually start modeling in their integrated resource plans that these guys are actually going to deliver this much reduction on peak days and sort of depend on them and then quote-unquote penalize them if they don't actually hit the numbers. You see the integrated resource plans starting to value many of these residential demand response services more and more. And I think once utilities actually get a handle on the value that these 
service providers can give to customers and to the transmission distribution system, you'll see that integrated more. As far as the time frame is concerned, I, I can't really say. Um, but I think the utilities, this is still very much an experimentation for the utilities. And even though some of these companies have millions of customers, the, the programs themselves are still very small. Yeah, you know what I found that Jigger's question really interesting because I think what happened during the big smart grid rush during the stimulus was that it, it was kind of turned upside down where utilities were going, all right, let's come up with these really complicated rates, these TOU rates and other kinds of rate schedules. And then that'll mean people are going to get engaged um, on the efficiency side. And like, that's not what engages people or rate structures. Instead, it's more about like, let's look at the intelligence and what we can get. I, I love the way it's coming much more organically from the tech sector rather than from the rate side, because I think the, on the rate side, they haven't been able to figure that out. They haven't gotten it right. Yeah. But interestingly, we do see some efforts in getting more dynamic pricing out. So SMUD, the Salt River Project, uh, even Pepco, Baltimore Gas and Electric, they've developed different variable pricing schemes to match up with some of these home energy management services that are being provided. They're all pretty much pilot programs, but what we did see in 2013 is that consumers are interacting with these dynamic pricing schemes in a way that they assumed they would, and they're actually reducing demand during peak times. So. But isn't it, Stephen, because they get the service? So whereas before well, they, were, they were so th so there's something the utilities are offering people. It's not just about pricing. It's about like you have control you and, and you know, you get to set what you want to do with intelligence. I mean, don't you think they're coming at it from a different from the other way than they were before, which is trying to slam rates down people's throats and saying, oh, they'll respond if we just make it look like this. Whereas now they have like a service they can provide. All right. Or, or someone has a service that may not necessarily even be the utility. Say it's like a nest that, you know, regardless of the utility, you're providing some kind of cool thing and a service, and, and then you can bring it into the rate. Oh, absolutely. And I think let's take residential demand response as an example. So FERC put out this report a few years ago on participation in these programs, and they found, you know, the standard programs where the utility just has a control switch on the AC unit, they see about a 2% participation rate among customers. Very, very low. But then you look at the uh, what consumers are doing with this Nest demand response program in Texas, um, and they saw 89% participation rate. Small pilot program, but still, when you have a service where the customer can interact with a product that they like and see yeah. energy prices in real time or have the system do it automatically, you see much greater participation. So that's why I brought this up, because I think 2013 finally was the year where people were wrapping around these offerings. They were taking cool products that people were buying, hooking them up to utility pricing schemes, figuring out what those pilot programs should look like, and showing that there are real results from these programs. And, you know, we saw that on a, a pretty serious scale in 2013. I mean, my big challenge with this market in general is that we're going to retire 70,000 megawatts of coal over the next 8 to 10 years. And I want to know how much of that hole that's been left is going to be filled by these players or whether they're always going to be if you're available great but if you're not available don't worry we're going to have capacity waiting on the sidelines well that's the big question for the coming years and 
we're still in very much a pilot stage, so I would hate to answer that question because it's anybody's guess at this point. So I'll move on to the commercial industrial side very briefly. One interesting trend that we saw were these virtual auditing firms starting to hit a stride as well. And there are a number of companies, Spark, First Fuel, Retroficiency, WeGoWise, and Noesis Energy, that are providing variations of these no-touch audits on buildings using meter data and other public information. And they can provide these virtual audits at a fraction of the cost of an on-site audit. And they can do it in hours sometimes under a day, depending on the size of the building and what kind of information they're using. And these firms have audited well over a billion square feet of buildings, and, and some of them have pulled in millions in venture capital this year. So utilities are starting to take these offerings seriously as well and integrated in integrating them into their efficiency plans, and they're being used to help target opportunities uh, that I think they weren't able to target before. I mean, they just weren't able to see what buildings they should be looking at first. So the the money that these companies have pulled in and the cumulative amount of uh, built square footage that they're actually monitoring is a story in uh, 2013, I think is notable. And then just one more on the CNI side that I think is interesting is this business shift at Enernoc, which has been moving beyond traditional demand response and into a, a what it labels a software-based company focused on broad energy management strategies. Um, and that means not just reducing demand at peak times, but smoothing out load over the entire day, really reacting with the power markets, and also procuring energy. And it wants to leverage its existing demand response customers to get deeper into buildings. And that's a shift, I think, that is representative of what's happening broadly in demand response. But this software sector is really interesting as well because it's very crowded. And this year was when we saw a range of new startups bringing in these energy management tools in the CNI space to market. And there are like 200 software companies now in the U.S., all targeting this space in various ways. And the market is getting super saturated. And there's a lot of confusion among customers and very little brand recognition and uh, not much trust in some of the IT firms that are coming into the space that may not understand building management. So I think that we're seeing this frenzy of new entrants this year, maybe in 2014. And beyond that, we'll probably see some of these companies dissolve or get acquired. And, and I expect to see somewhat of a shakeout. So I could go on. There are a lot of interesting stories in this intelligent efficiency realm, but those are just a few examples of of why I think it's important for 2013. All right, let's look ahead to 2014 now. So none of us are going to be able to predict who Time Magazine's Person of the Year will be or what the most searched term on Google will be, but we can offer some insight into what's ahead for the clean tech world. So Catherine, what's your prediction for a defining trend in 2014? Uh, it was so funny. I, I asked my husband this morning this question. I said, like, what would you think? And he said, taxes. And I said, oh, that's so boring. I'm, it's never going to be taxes. Well, about 10 minutes ago, Senator Max Baucus, who's the chairman of um, of the tax writing committee in the Senate, the Senate Finance Committee, released a discussion draft for his energy tax reform. And I think it's going to be taxes. <laughs> um, this is really interesting. Um, what this does is it makes the it would it would offer to make simplify the tax code seriously simplify it for energy tax policy get rid of a lot of tax incentives that have been around forever um, some of them including like the enhanced oil recovery costs marginal well production credit things like that 
and um, and extend some of the renewable credits like the production tax credit for wind, the investment tax credit, um, and for residential and commercial uh, through 2016. And then what they would do is consolidate all the tax incentives into technology neutral tax um, tax structure, which would be based on greenhouse gas emissions. So the cleaner the facility, the resource, the larger the credit. So um, I think this is absolutely fascinating. And they would define cleanliness by the ratio of greenhouse gas emissions divided by electricity production. And you could choose between having a production tax credit or an investment tax credit. So what do you think about the the plan to reduce the tax credit based on GHG emissions rather than a, uh, a volume of installations? I think it's interesting. I don't know how I've never seen anyone really details. propose this. Have you guys yeah. seen this before? I don't like it. Look, I mean, I think that, <laughs> I mean, the thing is the federal government's responsibility is to provide a certain amount of money through subsidies to allow us to get to economies of scale so that we can actually get our costs down. What these guys are saying is they no longer are going to help us get our costs down per se. They're actually going to reward technologies that have the lowest greenhouse gas emissions. So what happens if I have a geothermal project that generates power at three cents a kilowatt hour for the next 30 years? They're gonna give me the tax credit anyway because it's got a low cost. I just think that there's no way that this like mental model makes makes it into law. Mm. Well, it is the devil's in the details. So it does phase out as you, you know, as you reach a certain level of cleanliness. So it's not like it would go on in perpetuity. Um, it phases out over four years once the greenhouse gas intensity of the U.S. Uh, you know, electricity generation declines to the point that it's 25 percent cleaner than 2013. Um, but it and it's a really interesting model. And what it does is it says that our goal is is you know clean clean air and clean energy our you know that that sets a united states goal and i think it's fascinating and i think it's going to you know it, there's a long road to go on tax reform but i think it sets a marker out there that's absolutely fascinating he also just to throw this in the clean tr clean transportation fuel tax credit they're going to give with um zero life cycle emission fuel that has the same energy content as gasoline up to a dollar a gallon production tax credit. It's pretty significant. I mean, I think Baucus is basically targeting $150 billion worth of subsidies, which I think is great. My sense is a better approach would be to say, look, we're eliminating all $150 billion, you know, and then we're going to add on things that require cost reduction. Um, and so maybe we like sort of leave things status quo by until 2016, then we phase everything out. Um, and then we, you know, and then we basically like, you know, reintroduce tax credits that only cost the federal government three, four, five hundred million dollars a year because those technologies are really nascent. Um, and then you do the rest of this policy at the state level. Yeah, but you still have to have goals, right, of what you want. If your goal is only cost, then you're going to get a bunch of dirty new technologies. You won't get clean tech. I mean, if your goal is reduce greenhouse gas emissions, you're going to get clean tech. Or well, natural gas. I, I, I clearly disagree. I mean, I think that clean <laughs> tech is actually far better than natural gas and other volatile fuels. And so, I mean, I look, I mean, I think we can win on cost. My challenge is the federal government is the land of the lowest common denominator. So I don't want them setting policy when at the state level I can ac actually get truly aspirational policy. 
Well, uh, they are allowing comments or taking comments through January of 2014. So I hope you'll put your comments together, Jigger, for the for this report. I encourage them all to listen to the Energy Gang <laughs> podcast. <laughs> we know they are. We know they are. So, Jigger, what's on your top list for uh, 2014? Well, I mean, I really think that 2014 is going to be the year um, where nat- that natural gas breaks through on transportation. So I think that the big announcements that came out in 2013 were that um, Ford and GM have come out now with CNG versions of their most popular trucks. Um, I think the same thing is true with um, Peterbilt and um, and a lot of the, the trucking manufacturers as well as Bluebird and the buses and, and some of those guys. So I think that we're at a point now where this chicken and egg problem that we've had for years around is it fueling infrastructure first or is it the vehicle infrastructure first is getting solved. I mean, Shell also uh, signed a deal with travel centers to be able to put um, – natural gas refueling at, I think, 100 of the 348 travel center locations that truckers often go to 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 fuel up. So I think you're going to see an enormous amount of wealth creation happen in 2014 around natural gas for transportation. So you're talking about the trucking industry and large vehicle fleets, not necessarily consumer vehicles, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that that's where we're going to start. But the beauty is, is that Honda already makes a Honda Civic natural gas version, et cetera. And so as these refueling stations pop up, I do think the passenger cars that are located near those travel routes may decide to go to natural gas. But it's really heavy trucks, you're right, that's going to lead the way. Now, looking at some of the urban transportation fleets, like buses, there's a lot of stop and start activity. And so they're naturally going to emit more emissions and they're going to be less efficient. So when you have a natural gas fueled vehicle, you're going to be emitting more methane emissions. And there have been some studies released showing that at least for urban transportation fleets, natural gas would be uh, more climate damaging than, say, diesel. What do you have to say about that? Well, I think most of the natural gas emissions that I've looked at really come from the fugitive emissions that that are around the transport of natural gas to its final location. I don't think that you get all this natural gas leakage at the refueling point, um, although I might be wrong. But the bigger thing for me is I just think that we're at a stage right now where we have to end the hegemony of oil, right? So whether the natu- whether the greenhouse gas emissions go down or stay flat versus diesel, I think the big thing is if we can start to end the hegemony of oil in the same way that we did that in electricity, right? In- Today, nobody actually believes in King Coal anymore, whereas um, whereas people still believe in King Oil. And I think if we can start to undermine King Oil, we have a great shot of actually bringing in electric vehicles and other clean technologies. All right. Well, I am going to shift over to U.S. solar. I was struck by this recent NREL report that came out, I think it was about a month ago, that showed soft costs. These are all non-hardware costs. They now represent 64% of residential solar installations and 57% of commercial installs. So in 2011, it was roughly 50-50. And firstly, it's a good story about how manufacturers and racking companies and inverter companies have reduced costs. But it also proves that the big story for solar costs is the less sexy part of deployment. You know, getting better permitting standards, putting better project management tools in place reducing labor costs, getting better at selling solar to customers. 
So I think 2014 is going to be less about module prices and crashing and burning manufacturers that has been important in years past. Uh, actually, I do take that back. Inverter companies are getting squeezed pretty hard due to the same pricing pressures that inflicted module and cell producers. But the story has shifted even further downstream and will continue in 2014. So I think that means we're going to see some more mergers and acquisitions in uh, among large installers, more creative ways to acquire customers, uh, continued push to bring standardization to project development, uh, all those elements. And so these were all pretty big stories in 2013, but given the growing gap between hardware costs and software costs, and, or in soft costs, they become that much more important in the year ahead. Yeah, I mean, the, bit, the best way to control soft costs is by choosing your customers properly. And for a lot of, a lot of vendors, what you are, sorry, installers, what you find is that they know how to choose the commercial customers and residential customers who actually are going to have sort of a lower softer, soft cost profile. And so those folks are going to you know, continue to be really successful. And the folks who basically don't know how to do that stuff are going to continue to be plagued with high costs and they're just going to become uncompetitive. So we saw the shakeout in solar manufacturing in the recent years. You think a shakeout in, in installation is on its way. Yeah, it'll start in 2014. It'll probably finish in 2015. And and all of those people are going to get hired by other firms. And so the solar volumes in the U.S. are going to keep going up. So this has nothing to do with people losing their job. It just has to do with who's the CEO because I just think some of these folks just aren't led by people who are really dedicated to uh, business efficiency to really reduce costs. They're sort of more focused on other other things. Let's close out the show with a variation on our Tell Us Something We Don't Know segment. We're going to have each person tell us a topic they think was under the radar in 2013 that they think listeners should pay attention to in the coming year. Jigger, what is on your radar screen? So, I mean, I think that there are two things that I picked here. One is that that I think that solar is becoming this huge generator of capacity in the United States. I and mean, in October, it was 72%. And then I think nationwide for the whole year, it's going to be something on the order of like 20% of all new generating capacity this year comes from solar. And I think that's a hugely undercovered, under, you know, uh, covered story on the, at the national level. Um, and the second piece is gas prices squeezing folks. I mean, so the data, according to the Washington Post, uh, shows that for most Americans, they pay more for their transportation fuel bills than they pay for health care or for taxes. But gas prices are going down, and I think they've gone down like 33 weeks in a row. And it's, but it's still, the equation's still the same. That, you know, and this is health care costs plus taxes, right? So for most middle-class Americans, they're still paying more in transportation fuel for 11,000 miles a year or whatever that they're driving. Um, than for their health care premiums and taxes that they pay, including property taxes. Catherine, what do you think is going to fly out from under the radar? Well, I, I hope it will. So I think the smart concept that's been uh, you know, the s- smart grid is 
is going to move in much more into the water sector. It already is to some. Now it's done some in the gas. So um, utilities like um, SoCal Ed that has a gas portion, Baltimore Gas and Electric, SDG&E, you know, they have smart meters on the electric side and on the gas side. But I think what you're going to see is on the water side, a lot more technology. Um, there are already some municipal utility districts that are using smart water meters. There's a company called Water Smart Software that's like Opower that uh, that you know uses consumer um, you know behavior to try to change you know the way they use people use water. So I think the water part, especially given climate, what's going on with climate. Um, and and the South, uh, Georgia, um, areas like that that have really, you know, California's had water issues for a while, but there are other parts of the country now that are going to get really pinched. And I think smart water technologies are going to really start rising to the surface, so to speak. Yeah, and the American Society of Civil Engineers gave America's infrastructure a D-plus earlier this year. So they said that we need to spend $3.5 trillion by 2020 to uh, shore up its infrastructure. Very, very important. So th these smart elements that you're talking about uh, can be, be, be integrated into those investments. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of low-hanging fruit, as you say. There's a lot of, there's a lot of leak detection to be done, um, but then also just behavioral changes. Well, I'm looking at the 2014 elections. So this year's elections were an off year, a lot of local races, state races. People were still paying attention, but certainly didn't get the national attention that a presidential race or congressional races get. Uh, environmental issues did play a role in, in some races, as we pointed out, but you know, energy and climate still wasn't a huge issue. And of course, in the 2012 presidential race, climate was not talked about at all, which frustrated a lot of environmental activists and folks in the climate community broadly. So the big question for the 2014 elections is how are folks running for congressional races going to position themselves about renewables and about climate change? I think there's going to be a lot of money from environmental groups poured into key races. And I'll be interested to see if that actually influences how people talk about the issues and whether or not they actually make climate change something that, that they want to talk about as their key issue. And because we've seen so many fights in 13 states around the country around renewable energy standards, all of which have failed, I'll be interested to hear if politicians weigh in on those fights as well. I think that positions clean energy to be a pretty big topic in 2014 elections. Yeah, I agree with you. And it's, uh, as we've talked about before, it's all local. So it kind of depends on what the situation is in a state or district. Um, so the states and districts that have been impacted by severe weather events, um, you know, they'll, the politicians can use those those reasons to talk about clean energy and resilience um, and other states like Michigan, whose economy is so dependent on renewables, will will talk about economic reasons. So I think it, it totally depends on where where people are. But I think that climate and clean energy, you're going to start seeing those topics creep back into the conversation where they haven't really been before in the last few years. Well, the one thing that's that that's going to creep into this, though, is that most of the political stuff has been led by the environmental groups, not by the clean tech groups. And so it'll be interesting to see if the clean tech groups and the environmental groups actually coordinate on messaging. 
Yeah, and when you start talking about climate change, the environmental groups are willing to be much more aggressive in their messaging, and local clean tech businesses and allied groups are a little bit more hesitant, particularly in conservative areas, to talk about climate. So that's a major differentiator. Yeah, we'll see. Well, that is going to wrap up the show for this week and for the rest of the year. We want to hear from all of you out there. What are your top stories of 2013? What are your predictions for the coming year? Go to Green Tech Media and comment on our podcast page. And while you're at it, leave us a comment about uh, what you want us to cover in the future episodes. You can send us an email as well. Uh, my address is Lacey, L-A-C-E-Y, at greentechmedia.com. And we always love hearing from listeners. To subscribe to this show, you can find us on SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and iTunes. You can also grab our RSS feed and use it for the player of your choice. Catherine Hamilton of 38 North Solutions. It's been an awesome year. Hope you close out the remainder of your year relaxed with your family. Thanks, I will. And I just want to thank everybody who's been listening and making nice comments. I feel so lucky to be part of this group. Um, as they know, when they invited me to join the conversation, the first thing I said was, what am I supposed to wear? Um, and now, luckily, I realize how great the podcast medium is um, in that regard. And I've really, really enjoyed you guys. <laughs> And Jigger Shaw, same to you. We've enjoyed having you on the show as well. Enjoyed it immensely. Happy holidays, my friend. And happy holidays to you and the entire Green Tech Media team. You know, honestly, the the platform you guys have been created have created here is awesome. And I second what Catherine is saying is that uh, I just am so lucky to be a part of this. And um, I'm really, really su- genuinely surprised when I get stopped on the street corner or, or in, a, in a conference when people say i'm a loyal fan thank you very much for for taking time out to listen to us yeah i can't thank you guys enough for doing this show and being with you too is a highlight of my week so i'm really excited about the future of the show and also thank you so much to all the listeners out there we really appreciate it so with Catherine hamilton and jigger shaw i'm stephen lacy we are the energy gang a production of greentechmedia.com Have a great holiday season and a new year, and we'll catch you in 2014.